another vital game against an Eastern Conference foe tonight at Rogers Arena. It is the Canucks Hour here on Sportsnet 650. I'm Jamie Dodd, joined by uh, an only slightly distracted Thomas Trance as March Madness kicks off. Never <laughs> distracted. basketball, but we're locked in now. Uh, of course, you can read Trancer's work covering the team at The Athletic as well. Canucks Hour brought to you by Avenue Machinery. Being a champion takes foresight. Build your company to win for years to come with fuel-efficient and reliable Kubota skid steers, excavators, and loaders from Avenue Machinery, avenuemachinery.ca. Uh, happy St. Patrick's Day, Drancer. Happy first day of March Madness. A lot going on, and the Canucks will host the Red Wings tonight at Rogers Arena. You know, I didn't, I didn't want to call it a must-win game because we're not there yet. But on the other hand, every game feels like a bit of a must-win game for the Canucks at this point in their season, where based on where they stand uh, in the Western Conference playoff race. And I guess uh, because of those stakes, no surprise that for as much as we talked about how they should manage their goaltending workload over these next three games, Thatcher Demko confirmed by Bruce Boudreau that he will be in the crease for the Canucks tonight. So Thatcher Demko is the part of the line, Canucks lineup we know. Yep. The rest... A lot of uncertainty. <laughs> no Quinn Hughes at uh, Morning Skate. No Tyler Myers at Morning Skate. No Connor Garland. Bruce Boudreaux suggesting that that's all maintenance. We'll see. I, be- I-, I tend to believe that. Uh, the fact that, for example, Sheldon Rempel was at the- on the top line with Miller and Pearson, one would think if Garland was questionable in any way, they'd be trying something else. You'd, they'd see, have, they'd, you'd see more of a shakeup. They'd have Besser there, right? I mean, surely. So... But the more intri- the bigger intrigue is on Niels Hoaglander, who Bruce Boudreau described as a game time decision. Um, that one seems unlikely to me. Yes, Hoaglander feels like the safest bet to miss tonight's game for Vancouver. And then you've got the big name, Elias Pettersson. So Elias Pettersson has missed a game and missed some practices. Is he has he missed two games actually? He's missed two games. Two games. So we haven't seen Pettersson play in two games and. He's a game-time decision again tonight. The Canucks need him, especially on the power play. He's practiced. He's got a full-team practice in. He was on the ice for a full-team morning skate. Here's the key wrinkle from morning skate that I think you need to read a lot into. I would, if I was a betting man, and on this March Madness Day, this holy day, <laughs> I am, um, I, would, I would assume that Pedersen plays, and here's why I think that he will play. I saw... Yuho Lamico go through his usual face-off drills this morning. And usually, Yuho Lamico's head-to-head opponent is Elias Pettersson. And today, it was not. It was Nick Patan, who was skating in a green practice jersey with Pettersson throughout the skate. Will Pettersson try to play but not take draws tonight? Because that's what was suggested to me by what I saw at morning skate, was, was I would expect Patan with Pettersson and Chase on, and Patan will be the player taking draws, and Pedersen will be playing at, at far less than 100%. That, that, is, that, is my, that is my what I read between the lines from Boudreaux's commentary plus what I saw at Morning Skate. That is, that is what I saw today. That is what I would expect. Of course, no guarantees. I'm not saying I'm right here. I'm just saying that's what I saw. That's what I would expect based on what I saw. Um, you know, I've watched a lot of Morning Skates over the years. I tend to have a decent feel for this. That would be my that would be my expectation for what to expect from Vancouver tonight and the return of you know their most electric offensive player Elias Pettersson. I would bet as well on Pettersson playing just based on the fact that he's been a, a full participant in their their morning skate today and in their practice yesterday. But obviously the concern, as you mentioned, if he's at much less than 100, percent and not just that, when you talk about 
okay, if he's not going to be the one t- uh, taking draws on his line, and I know uh, Patrick Johnson from the from Post Media was reporting this as well, that it sounds like it could be related to the wrist injury that bothered him last year, that kept him out of the, uh, of the end of the season last year, that was bothering him earlier in this season as well. So there's the concern not just for tonight what kind of Elias Patterson the Canucks going to be getting, but I think obviously when you hear that, you start to have more medium and long-term concern even as well. Okay, when is he going to be back to 100%? Is this risk going to be a chronic issue for the rest of the season as they try to make this playoff push? So it will be very good news if he's in the lineup tonight, but that wrist is definitely something that uh, that bears watching and bears monitoring, not just tonight, but for the, for the rest of the season as well for Elias Pettersson because obviously they are going to need him at the top of his game to continue this playoff push. So as you mentioned – you can't read a ton necessarily into these line combinations, but it was Miller with Pearson and Rempel. If Garland is just a maintenance day, you'd expect to see him in Rempel's spot there. Uh, Pod Coles and Horvat and Besser, Patan, Pedersen and Chason, and then Highmore, Lamico, and Mott. And I think especially, I mean, we have talked about this line a lot. I know you're working uh, on, on a story about them as well. Drancer, that fourth, but actually third, maybe sometimes even second line <laughs> centered by Yuho Lamico. We've talked about them a lot, but especially when there is this kind of uncertainty in the top six, right? And okay, is Hoaglander going to be available? Is Garland going to be available? What version of Elias Patterson are you going to get? It really makes you realize what kind of a security blanket the Canucks have when they have a bottom six group that is so stable, so dependable, and can take on such a significant role for this team. Again, it you know you would love to have it be your fourth line. That would be an incredible luxury. But the fact that you can play them a much more significant role than that, man, that's a luxury that a lot of teams don't have when you can <laughs> basically elevate a bottom six group like that. I don't know how to explain it. I really don't know how to explain it because, you know, it's one thing to cobble together an effective bottom six line, but... 230 minutes played together. They're now the line that has spent the most time as a trio for this Canucks team Which all season Which is just long. incredible. Just incredible. They're the most consistent line. The thing you know you're going to see when you see the Vancouver Canucks is Lamico, Mott, Highmore. You know you're going to see it. Matthew Highmore was injured for, like, what, six weeks to start the season? <laughs> yeah. And Mott, and Mott, too. Yes. Right. Both of the, uh, like... They are the most frequently used forward line for this team. And, and at this point, it's not by a little bit, right? It's like... And it's growing... It's growing as Bruce Boudreau tries different combinations, right, uh, uh, in his top six. This is the one staple. This is the staple line. This is the line you see every night. And they're the line that I think, like, I would refer to them as almost like a heartbeat. You know, they're almost the heartbeat of this team. They're the team, they're the line that fits with, I think, Rutherford's view of, of how he'd love to play the best. I think they're the line that fits with how Bruce Boudreau's system works the best. They're the line that can execute his aggressive forecheck the best they're also the line that can you know I talked to Matthew Highmore at length today he referred to it as pushing the battle just outside the blue right I call it punt and hunt he calls it he referred to it as in those terms but you know the way that the Canucks break out they really don't emphasize puck control anymore they're just trying to push the battle out go hunt go hunt they're the they're the wingers that are best at blowing the zone getting on defenders Every team that plays the Canucks, if they're not ready to work, is going to be rolling their eyes every time this line comes over the boards. <laughs> they're just so annoying. They're absolute hazards out there. And and the numbers are wild, right? I had this exchange with Matthew Highmore today where I said to him, what's, like, what's been the key here? What's going on? Explain this to me, Matthew. And he says, we work hard. You know, we keep it simple. We work hard. 
and I and I sort of interrupted him, and I'm like, Matthew, every bottom six line in this yeah. league works hard. None of them control play like this. The vast majority of NHL players work hard. And he just had a soft nod, and he was like, yeah, that's fair. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, 230 minutes together, right? We're not talking about a small sample of success. We're not talking about a small run of success. 55% plus control of expected goals. Outrageous. Outrageous for a bottom six line. Makes no sense. There's no other forward line on this team that controls play to that extreme extent, that tilts the ice like this forward line. And they're plus 10 by goal differential. Three goals against in 230 minutes? I mean, Look, that 55% is very different from, 13 the, and three. from the 83% yes. that 13-3 and three represents. So you know there's some good luck there. You know there's some things that won't last in that. But three goals against in 230 minutes against a line that's ostensibly your fourth line. I mean, if you're getting a plus 10 goal difference from your, from your fourth line or from any bottom six line you have, the sledding for everybody else is like positively downhill, right? Just like tobogganing, uh, you know, in, uh, <laughs> at Arbutus Park or fresh powder um, or China ground. Creek, yeah. you know, just like a nice slope, like nice leisurely ride down. Incredible, honestly, honestly, it's it defies explanation to me how good this line has been. I mean, obviously, the speed on the wings is key. Obviously, it's there's a there's like a perfect marriage of of fit and system, um, you know, Yuho Lamico's sort of big lumbering presence. He, he doesn't carry the puck, but he doesn't need to on this line. He's got good hands and tight. He works hard. He plays physically. He eliminates the cycle. And then these two guys just get buzzing about <laughs> being hazards on the ice. Um, it's incredible. Honestly, I, I really struggle to explain what we're seeing from this line, particularly now that their success now that I understand just how significant their success has been as a line and how durable it seems because it's gone on for so long, I mean, this this might be the most important forward line the Canucks have. And that's mind-blowing to me. Like, I, I honestly, that defies... How do you explain that? Well, it, how do you explain that? They've had other groups that have had success, right? Like Miller, Pearson, and Besser early in the Boudreaux tenure had a lot of success. We're mm-hmm. playing very well. But then for various reasons, they've been split up. Uh, Patterson, Hoaglander, and Pod Colson. That line looked like it was going to really have a spark and have some chemistry and some production. They've been good, but again, then for various reasons, they get split up. So they haven't... It's the only unit that Boudreaux has landed on as, okay, this is what I have to put in the lineup every night, right? Everything right. else is still kind of open to experimentation. And so two thing, a couple things that stand out to me about that line and about some of the stats you're you're rolling out for us. One, you know, you talk about a fifty five percent expected goal share. It's not as if they're doing it in sheltered minutes against the other team's fourth line either, right? Like no. they've been used in matchup roles, playing significant minutes, playing more than you would typically expect from a bottom six group, playing against better competition and all of that. And they're still able to control play like that. That really stands out to me. And then, as you mentioned, the fact that they really personify the forechecking style that this team obviously wants to make its identity and I think has begun to make its identity, they're the line that you know is going to execute that plan most successfully night in and night out. Other other guys do it as well, but that line you pretty much know, again, 100% of the time they are going to just be a drag on the forecheck for the other team. They're going to turn pucks over. They're going to generate zone time. Like that. And I got to say, I mean, we've talked about this a lot, and obviously the trade deadline is on Monday. 
Tyler Mott's really their only uh, pending UFA that would be uncomplicated to deal, of course, because we all know about the Yarrow Halak situation. And I have been very much on, you know, team they should trade Tyler Mott. Yes, he's a really good player. Yes, he's a really good fit. But you should still cash in and you should still get what you can for him at the deadline. And I got to say, just seeing the stats as you laid them out has kind of made me think, ah, is there something there, though? Because my stance has been, okay, look, go trade Tyler Mott, go find another fast, speedy forward that you can plug in there with that with Highmore and Lamico and try to recreate the magic. But, again, we knew they've been good, but when you see it actually put in those kind of black and white terms, it's like, no, 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 they've been really good. And if the best way to replicate that success is by keeping Tyler Mott and giving an extension, I don't know. All of a sudden, I kind of feel more predisposed to that than I have for uh, for a long time, or at least for uh, for the majority of this season. Denis from Langley texts in, uh, I've said this a lot, but it's all about chemistry. That line clearly has the most of it, and that's got to be one of the big things that they look at in the offseason. Of the core guys they keep, who has chemistry and who can you bring in to help complement those guys? And yeah, whatever you want to call it, chemistry, identity, that line has it right now, and uh, as I said, all of a sudden I'm I'm questioning myself on the uh, they should trade Tyler Mott stance that I've had pretty consistently up you? until this point. Yeah, I'm I'm all like I saw those stats. I'm like, okay, well maybe maybe it's not just plug and play. <laughs> no, you I've know never, what I mean. I've never been on team trade Mott. I've been on team extend or trade Mott. Yes, and the problem is you can't extend him unless you clear out cap space elsewhere. In my view, or at least lock in some durable cap savings for your projection in the next year. I don't think the problem with extending Mott before the deadline is a, he's still looking for a lot, right? Like you probably need to buy time. If you want to get a more team friendly settlement, you might even need him to get into the point of um, the market opening where he, he hears other offers, right. And is like, ah, am I really willing to leave a place where I get used this frequently and, and this well regarded for over, you know, 750 K or whatever. Right? I mean, sometimes you have to, call people's bluff in negotiations, particularly when they're a player like Mott, who is so good, don't get me wrong, but also as a player you have to feel confident you can replace. You have to. As an organization, you have to have that level of self-confidence. I think you have to have that level of self-confidence with JT Miller. So I definitely think you have to have that level of self-confidence with Tyler Mott. Good organizations find ways to replace players. So, you know, the fact remains, though, that Mott is such a perfect stylistic fit he's so well calibrated to this market he's Connor Bedard's favorite player all of those things go into the the blender here and come out as a uh, come out and suggest to me that he's a player worth trying to keep Connor Bedard knows man he knew he was ahead of the curve on yeah. Tyler Mott no, I, guys guys brilliant there, there's a reason he's the best prospect to ever come out of western Canada uh unsigned text and by the way get your text in 650 650 to be Dunbar Lumber text line and says uh, why can't Lockwood fill in for Mott maybe he can maybe but there's definitely some uncertainty there and and again I I think ultimately I do still land in the same spot as, as you're saying Drance where you have to have the confidence in your own abilities to go out and replace bottom six players but I do think what has happened is this has moved beyond just, oh, hey, these are good bottom six players, to you have something really special with this unit. And again, maybe the best maybe the best course is, look, we're going to move on from Tyler Mott, we're going to get what we can from him at the deadline and try to find another player who checks all of those boxes uh, and, and gives us something special with that group again. But 
it has become, I think, a more difficult decision than it was, you know, even just a few weeks or a month ago, given how consistently they are having success. Uh, Gurjeet texts in, what would a mod extension look like? $2.5 million or more per year. If he costs the Canucks more than $2 million per year, then the Canucks shouldn't do it. Well, Gurjeet... It's going to be more than $2 million per year. First of all, Gurjeet is the best and, and my favorite. I just want to go out and say that. I'm sorry to all our other uh, passionate listeners and texters, but Gurjeet's the man. <laughs> And Gurjeet is also a very sharp businessman in, in real life, and he's dead on here. And by the way, I would say his thinking on this pretty closely matches what, what I believe the organization thinks, which is that, you know, they'd love to keep Mott at the right number. I, I think $2 million is too much. And, and the, problem is you, the problem you get into is the internal pressure of the contracts you sign, right? Um, the Dickinson comp in particular is a tough one to get around in negotiations with Mott's camp. And yet, you know, I think if you're the Canucks, you really have to walk through like, well, there's a reason we're going to be aggressive in trying to offload that deal. There's a reason we might buy it out this summer or next summer. Like, there's a reason for that. We don't want that for you. That's not how you fit. You need to be able to sell your vision if you're going to keep a player like Mod at the number that makes sense. You have to break that chain at some point, too, right? Totally. Like, you can't just keep saying, well, this guy's making it, so we have to give this player that. Like, you have to break that pattern and start a new precedent well, at and, some point. And there's nothing, there's almost nothing more important. Like, go look at the best teams in the league, and they all have the opposite impact, which is they all have a player who has had the opposite impact on their lineup. Um, you know, you think about the Tampa Bay Lightning have Hedman, who, who came in at like 8-5, right? And Stamkos, who left money on the table after testing free agency, right? Decided to sign back with Tampa Bay. They literally took him to the 11th hour and, and ultimately had him sign a deal that sort of set an internal cap. And now, and, and sorry, and they also have one in Nikita Kucherov who signed that bridge deal. So now they've got this whole system set up. And this is how the Tampa Bay Lightning system works. We grind you on your bridge deal. You work for us for three years after your entry-level deal. This is the path that Sergeyev has taken, that Braden Point has taken, that Andre Vasilevsky has taken, that Nikita Kucherov has taken. And then what happened with Kucherov, Vasilevsky, and Braden Point? They continued to excel, and the day they were eligible, the day they were eligible for a long-term extension, they got it. Max term, 9.5 or $10 million, like clockwork. They literally have a system that players understand and know that they can fit into. You, you get bridged, you get your max deal, and you get it the day you are eligible. It is a, a covenant between organization and player, and it's you know far more than any LTIR shenanigans. It's what's permitted the Tampa Bay Lightning to lap the league over the last decade with the, with the fruits of their labor coming in the last two seasons as they've repeated as back-to-back cup champs. You look at the Boston Bruins, what they had with Bergeron and then with Chara. They only they only detonated that framework in the last like two years for for Charlie McAvoy. Yep. And McAvoy's now that presence for on their defense core. And Pasternak is now that presence for their forward core. But everyone has to slot in under Bergeron because of where Bergeron's at. The Canucks used to have this with the twins. The twins created that pressure for Ryan Kessler, for Roberto Luongo, right? Who who ended up, yes, signing a massive and ultimately inconvenient deal for this organization, but the cap hit came in at under six one. Right. Everyone had to take less because you couldn't be paid more than the twins. And in, you know, on the blue line, similarly, they had this sort of like soft cap of four point five, four point six that impacted where Jason Garrison came in. When Christian Erhoff pushed for more, they dealt him. Turned out to be a mistake, but, you know, they, they were very rigid in how they viewed 
the level at which, well, maybe it wasn't a mistake considering how Airhoff's next contract worked out for the Buffalo Sabres, but, you know, I think in retrospect we look back and, and think this team needed that puck mover from the back end. Um, I probably didn't, no one won <laughs> in the Airhoff <laughs> no. negotiation falling through. So, you do need to impose that discipline, and it's going to be hard considering where this club is at, and I do think that pivots nicely and, or dovetails nicely into the JT Miller conversation, right, which is, you know, with Tomas Hurdle, Tomas Hurdle signing, everyone's sort of wondering, like, if Miller comes in at 8.5 or 9 million, and then two years from now when he's 32 and Elias Pettersson is 25 and probably has added 15 pounds to his frame and is outscoring JT Miller, all of a sudden you have a floor on what you can pay Elias Pettersson. And then the, the sort of envelope keeps getting pushed against you as opposed to the gravity working in your favor I do I do I think you're right the Canucks do need to find a way new management does need to find a way to break that chain particularly because it's not like they have the Crosby Latang Malkin sort of poles that that you can that you can lean on in establishing that cap sanity the same way that Rutherford was able to with the Pittsburgh Penguins. And I think they have a chance to do that if they make some smart decisions over the next few years because you look at Quinn Hughes and his AAV, and that's a very reasonable number for what he provides, right? Uh, Bo Horvat, who's the captain, now he's not in that same echelon as a, as a producer, as a point producer like Miller, not uh, a superstar player like they want Elias Pettersson to be or Quinn Hughes, but when his next contract comes up, I think there's a chance for that to kind of slot in in a team-friendly way. And then the the next big one is obviously Elias Pettersson. What does he get when this bridge deal turns over? But if, if that number becomes something that you can kind of use, as you said, as a means to incentivize other players taking less, you really have a shot to establish that kind of thing over the next few, he, few years here. But you have to avoid the pitfalls of overplaying Tyler Mott, of overpaying JT Miller, or, or I don't even want to call it overpaying, because I just think he's going to get a monster, monster number. He and he's earned it. And he's earned it. You, you have to be the team, though, I, I still believe, to not give him that deal, because as you said, it creates a whole host of complications for you. And I do just want to, b- before we go to break here, uh, Frank Cervelli was on with Halford and Bruff this morning talking about the Tomas Hurdle deal and how it relates to JT Miller, and specifically... Uh, JT Miller's agent was having some fun on Twitter last night. Posted the Great uh, tweet. "Show me the money." Nicely gift. done, nicely done, <laughs> yeah. Mr. Bartlett. Yeah, well done. from uh, from Jerry Maguire, uh, indicating his excitement about Tomas Hurdle. Here's what Frank Saravelli had to say about that. His agent is not making a mistake when he's tweeting that out. He's not doing it to be witty or tongue in cheek. It helps. It, it it greases the wheels um, for something like that. You know, it's another market setting contract in this post pandemic world that you can draw on and say, Tomas Hurdle is a good player, but JT Miller is well North of a point per game and is driving just about everything this team is doing. And, you know, his numbers should exceed Tomas Hurdle and where they stand. I, you know, I, that's, that has to be the takeaway, the reaction you know, I, I think the number has to start with a nine for JT Miller. Um, 8.1375 is what is what Hurdle got. Um, same age, relatively. Better production. I don't know. I, that's the way I see it. 
That's Frank Saravelli, of course, uh, NHL insider for the Daily Faceoff and regular contributor here on Sportsnet 650. Earlier today with Halford and Broff talking about what the Tomas Hurdle extension in San Jose means for JT Miller's next deal. And I think the key phrase, the key few words there that people are going to pick up on, and I think rightfully so, is I think that JT Miller's next number is going to start with a nine. And, you know, who knows if that eventually comes to fruition, but that should at least give you kind of a ballpark number to work with when you're thinking about what would it actually take to keep JT Miller as a Vancouver Canuck. And I think it's important, Drancer, because obviously there's been so much discussion about JT Miller's future over the last few months. And and one of the questions we get a lot is, why is there this rush to get rid of such a talented player, such a productive player for this team? And I think some people hearing that from Frank, Frank Cervelli have had a bit of sticker shock. Like, oh, whoa, I didn't know it was going to be that expensive. But that's kind of why this conversation started, right, is the recognition that JT Miller is going to be a very, very expensive player on his next deal. And once you start to think about it in those terms, look, I think we all agree JT Miller's not going to be traded by this deadline, but the logic of moving him in the summer, right, trading to a team that does want to give him that kind of extension this year coming off a career year, it starts to make a lot more sense when you realize you take it from the abstract of expensive to, oh, it's going to be like a $70 million contract. And then you start to really wrap your mind around it. The, yeah, I mean, the thing to bear in mind is that, you know, really like the one to watch, the one to watch, and and the one that I think will matter a lot for Miller as a comparable to, right, is you've got Nazem Kadri. Now, Nazem Kadri and JT Miller are both players who've been legitimate top six options, right? They've they've both had big seasons. Both having, seasons, both having career years right now, too. And they're, and they're almost identical. In fact, they have the exact same number of points. Kadri's played one fewer game. And I think when you look at their production this season, you have to be able to understand that, yeah, they've never been top 10 NHL scorers before. There's a very decent chance that they never are again. Opportunity has played a big role in inflating their production, right? So they have identical numbers. Kadri is hitting the open market this summer. And I think they're the same age, actually. I think uh, Kadri's, Kadri's a one year older. Kadri's, I think, a couple years older. Two? Yeah. Okay. So, But they're roughly the same age. Yeah. And what Kadri signs for on the open market, I think, is going to resonate in terms of what Miller's next deal looks like. And and one thing to bear in mind, too, is watching how the best organizations in hockey, right, the best teams in hockey, navigate situations that I think can be said to be somewhat analogous. Uh, you know, Vincent Trocek isn't having the same offensive outbreak as the other two, but Trocek's a really, really good player, right? Clearly a Clearly a top six quality player, maybe a top line, fringe top line quality player. And I don't think there's any expectation that the Carolina Hurricanes are going to gear up to try and get that done. In fact, a lot of people saw the Jesperi Kakaniemi extension as their effort to fill in that slot in their lineup at, at a fixed cost. Uh, are the Colorado Avalanche going to try and move things around to extend Nazem Kadri, or are they, are they going to try and replace him, right? If the best organizations are going about their business that way, and you're going about your business a different way you're you're in fact functioning more like the san jose sharks i think you have some you know pretty big questions to ask yourself while looking yourself in the mirror and and figuring out like what are we trying to do here um you know it's i'm never an absolutist on like you have to let this guy walk 
but the team that I look at as a cautionary tale here is the Dallas Stars in particular. Like you think about Esselindell and Klingberg, who are top pair quality defensemen making a combined nine million. Then you add Miro Haskinen into the equation, and you've got one of the best defensemen in hockey. Right? Imagine adding one, Imagine adding a Quinn Hughes quality player to a team that already has two top pair quality defensemen making nine million, and then you draft a goalie in Jake Ottinger who arrives in the NHL at like 21-22 and is already really good, like really good, can lean on him significantly. And then you've got this layer of young players, right? A, a quality centerman in Radic Faxa, but a guy in, um, what's what's the Finnish forward's name? I forgot oh, it for a uh, moment. Rupe Hintz. Rupe Hintz, who hits and becomes a first-line caliber contributor. You've got all of this that works in your favor all at the same time. And you're a fringe playoff team. And you're a fringe playoff team because you don't have enough secondary scoring. And it's really hard to address that lack of secondary scoring because you've got almost $20 million tied up in a couple of guys in Jordan, Jamie Benn and Tyler Sagan who are getting really long in the tooth, aren't nearly that, that productive, and take up a, a quarter of your cap space. Um, are the Canucks setting themselves up to get stuck the way the Dallas Stars do if you live in a world where JT Miller and... Oliver Ekman Larson in their early 30s, probably beginning to look quite different than they look right now, uh, combined to take up 17, 18 million of your available cap space. My concern would be, yeah, that's exactly what you're about to do in a world where you sign JT Miller long term. And, and I just think waiting that is going to be a big task, a big, a big decision, a crucial a crucial turning point, like a, like a, a fork in the road for new Canucks management as they navigate it this summer and perhaps into next season. And I think the difference between all of those teams that you just mentioned there, right, with Kadri of Colorado and Trocek with Carolina and even the Dallas Stars example, right, is with, with Trocek and Kadri, those teams are going to let those players walk as UFAs, most likely, and they're not going to get anything in return. And that makes sense because they're pushing for the Cup right now, right? So it's like, hey, we have them now. We're going to go all in and try to win the Stanley Cup right now. Well, the, the, the Canucks don't have to just lose J.T. Miller for nothing, right? They can still make a very, very valuable deal in the summer, in the offseason for J.T. Miller. And I think, again, you know, with uh, with the Dallas Stars and, for example, Jamie Benn, there's always such a fear of losing a player like that, especially when it's a homegrown player like Jamie Benn. It just doesn't feel like something you can sell to the marketplace. Well, I think the Canucks can absolutely sell trading JT Miller at the draft or in the summer for a haul of valuable young assets to this marketplace. So I think it's more kind of politically uh, possible to use a, uh, to use that term in Vancouver. And it's also, you know, you don't, you're not potentially risking losing this player for nothing. You still have a chance uh, to cash in and get something valuable for JT Miller and avoid making that big mistake and taking on what could be a, an anchor contract down the road. 650-650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. Keep your thoughts coming in. Uh, we'll get to a bunch of them on JT Miller after the break. It is Canucks Hour here on your home of the Canucks, Sportsnet 650. Welcome back to the Canucks Hour on your home of the Canucks, Sportsnet 650. Jamie Dodd, Canucks insider Thomas Drance here at Rogers Arena on a game day. The Canucks taking on the Detroit Red Wings tonight. Another big game. Pretty much all big games for the Canucks at this point as they try to keep pace in the Western Conference playoffs. We'll look at tonight's game. It's March Madness game. in the NHL, That's too. right. That's right. Let's go. Uh, we'll look at tonight's game and the matchup against the Red Wings. A couple of former Canucks defensemen 
returning home. One uh, was significantly more <laughs> well-remembered in this city than the other. Uh, but I did want to read this text. We were talking about the uh, the JT Miller contract situation, in particularly in light of the Tomash Hurdle extension in San Jose yesterday. Unsigned text comes in saying, is it remotely possible to sign Miller for a shorter term but higher AAV, something similar to Matthews, like four years for $10 million per season. And I very much understand the, okay, let, like, let's think of every every possible option. Let's try to get creative here. Is there Sorry, anything the, they can on, do? On JT. Yes, on JT Miller. I understand the, the thought process, but I just think what you, what you more than even term or years, what you have to look at is the total value of the deal, right? So the total value of that Tomas Hurdle deal is – 65 million basically yeah. right eight years for just a little over eight million you know 10 by four that's 40 million now yeah okay then you're a free agent again but you have no idea what your leverage or what your your value on the open market is going to be in four years when you hit free agency again to go for that next deal so if you have a chance as jt miller to lock in a 70 million dollar contract right now set up generations of wealth for your family that's the option you're going to yeah, go for no over kidding. the 40 million dollar deal right like no risk zero risk guaranteed 70 million that that's what we're talking about for JT Miller so any creative solution has to have an incredibly persuasive answer to why shouldn't I sign a 70 million dollar contract right now and, and I just don't know if there is that solution I get it I get why fans are trying to find one he's an amazing player he's so much fun to watch all of that I, I just don't know if there's any way to square that circle no, uh, it's really tough. And, and you know, the flat cap just makes it really, really difficult. You know, it's hard to think of long-term deals signed by players in and around this age that work out really well for the teams. And, and when they do, it's because the player is Alex Ovechkin or Anze Kopitar or going to the Hall of Fame. And their floor, for when they diminish a little bit, is, is really high. Uh, you know, Corey Perry, for example, is a really good example in, in Anaheim. That was a deal that was sort of the basis of the extension, the last contract that the Sedins signed. That got bought out. So, you know, it, it is really, it's a really challenging, it's a really challenging thing to manage. Um, especially when that player is doing as well as JT is this season, right? Uh, and especially when there's such a big part of, of what you're seeing. Uh, with a team that's, you know, defying the odds and, and winning at an elite rate, uh, a rate that's impossible to argue with over the course of a, a multiple-month span. Um, you know, we'll see how this season plays out, right? There's still some time. There's still a lot of work that this Canucks team needs to do to make the playoffs. Um, but, you know, if you're JT Miller, I think you're trying to get an extension this summer, whether it's from the Canucks or, or from a team you're dealt to. I think that's a pretty crucial that's the thing play. you got to do. You right. have you, to do you're, you can't bet on your value being higher next year. Like You're having such an incredible season. Strike while the iron is hot and get that money. And I think one thing you have to be mindful of if you're the Canucks is that you know the per-minute scoring rate that JT Miller has managed in Vancouver, right? We all see the top 15 NHL scoring. But if you go on a per-minute basis, right, JT Miller's scoring is not significantly different from what he did in Tampa Bay. It's just that here he's... He plays a ton. Number one in usage on at even strength. Gets the best line mates, right? And and the entire power play runs through him. And and I think you have to be very mindful of the fact, like, when JT Miller came to Vancouver, Troy Stetcher, who will play in his home rink, once told me that he thought JT Miller was having, like, a Golden Knights impact 
that like the thing that happened to William Carlson, Eric Halla, Marcia So, Riley Smith, on and on down the line. All of a sudden, you got all these good players, and they got a chance to play top, top line minutes, and they hit it out of the park, and their production exploded for the Golden Knights. You're seeing it with Jared McCann this year in Seattle, although you're not seeing enough of it in Not Seattle. seeing it with the other Seattle players, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but you are seeing it with Jared McCann. Troy Stetcher suggested to me that what had happened to a variety of Golden Knights stars had happened to JT Miller when he came to Vancouver. All of a sudden, he was being fed this different role, and he was perfectly capable of taking advantage of it and more. He's been scintillating for the Canucks, particularly over the course of the last six weeks. Um, but I think you also have to be very careful in understanding then that there might be other guys who you can go and have you know, have that impact for you. And, and they might be younger and they might be more affordable and they might fit better into your cap structure, uh, particularly considering that, you know, I, I don't know. I don't know the answer to this, right? I'm not saying I do. I'm just saying I think the really tough question you have to ask yourself is if JT Miller is your highest paid forward, can you win a cup? You know, I, I think you have to I think you have to be very careful in how you respond to that question. I think this organization is going to have to be very careful in how they respond to that question. And so, you know, while I always think you want to try and keep as many really, really good players as you can, and JT Miller fits that bill to a T, you know, it, it's not an easy one. It's not a straightforward, like, obviously, you got to do it because he's really good. I also don't think it's an obvious you got to trade him because he's never going to fit. I think it's a really challenging one to navigate. And, and again, I think a big fork in the road for this club. Yeah, there's no question about that. Um, it's it's <laughs> when you talk about big decisions uh, that they have to navigate. This certainly qualifies. You mentioned Vegas in another context, but I did want to bring up, of course, it's not just big game for the Canucks tonight. Uh, they're also watching the out of town scoreboard. So Dallas is in Montreal. Edmonton is hosting Buffalo, who of course the Canucks will play on Saturday as Buffalo makes their way uh, through Western Canada. And the Vegas Golden Knights back home from that disastrous five-game road trip, and they get the pleasure of hosting your favorite team, Drancer, the Florida Panthers. And not only that, um, Vegas and their head coach. That's a tough matchup. That's a tough matchup. And Vegas and their head coach, Pete DeBoer, talking about their injury problems right now and basically saying, yeah, Stone, Pacioretty, Robin Lehner, I don't know when we're going to have any of them back. I'm not looking at any of them in the near future. And, man, the the worst-case scenario for Vegas, and who knows if the Canucks will be the ultimate beneficiary, who knows if Vegas will find a way to turn it around, but that worst-case scenario for that team of missing the playoffs, it just keeps seeming more and more likely the more things go wrong and the more you hear about the situation and the injury situation for that team right now. Yeah, although they're still controlling play, so don't count Vegas out yet. If if they can... The, the thing with goaltending is it's super volatile, right? Y- yes... They've gotten terrible goaltending over a run of games, but that doesn't necessarily mean they'll always continue to get, you know, the, it's the gambler's fallacy, right? Like, well, Reds hit four times, so it's definitely going to be black. It's like, no, the odds haven't Not changed. Necessarily. The odds haven't changed. So, you know, Vegas is still an imposing team to catch. I, I know they've flagged, and the Canucks have absolutely got an opportunity to pass them. Uh, they have the easier opportun- uh, team tonight. Like, tonight might be the night that they pass the Vegas Golden Knights in the standings. Um but they still play them a bunch. They're, they're still a very, very good team with a ton of talent, and they control play exceptionally well. Um, you know, I'm not looking at Vegas as a team that's by any means being left behind. I think they're going to be in this till the end. And so, you know, that sort of raises the stakes for the Canucks' performance tonight. You can't cough one up against Detroit 
considering Vegas is hosting the best offensive team in hockey with goaltending issues. Like you gotta you gotta take advantage. You gotta strike while the iron is hot. And with you know Detroit in the building tonight, Calgary, a team that the Canucks match up pretty well with, and have, have blown out recently on Saturday, and then the Buffalo Sabres on Sunday. Like this is when the iron is hot, particularly because on the other side of the deadline. You've got a much tougher schedule for seven games. And I wanted to talk about the matchup with Detroit specifically. You know, Bruce Boudreaux, he didn't he didn't talk for a very long to the media this morning, but one of the things he did say was, and this is something we've talked about as well, Drancer, that he sees a lot of similarities between this Detroit team and the team the Canucks beat on Tuesday, the New Jersey Devils. And I, I think that's fair, although I don't think Detroit is really nearly as good as, as the Devils are. And you look, they're missing some key players. Robbie Fabry recently injured. Tyler Bertuzzi not eligible to play in this game as well. But as much as you can look at their their lineup and say, okay, there's a bunch of weak spots here, we know they also have some very dangerous players in the likes of Dylan Larkin, Lucas Raymond, obviously Mo Sider on the back end. But overall, I do look at this, and, and especially the way Detroit, the form they've been in recently, the way their roster and their lineup shakes up with some key absences tonight, and I know the Canucks might have some absences of their own, but I do kind of feel okay if you're going, if you want to be, if the Canucks want to be taken seriously as a legitimate playoff threat, as a threat to make the playoffs and complete this this miracle comeback for their season, you really should be handling this Detroit Red Wings team on home ice. And I know it's the NHL, right? And there, there's no kind of guaranteed win night in the NHL. Anything can happen on any given night. But I just look at the talent gap and the recent performance gap between these two teams, and it really is, man, if you cough up these two points, that's pretty devastating because this is a team, yeah, there's maybe some stylistic issues, there's maybe some matchup issues, yeah, they have high-end players, uh, high-end exciting players like like Larkin and Raymond, but, man, this is a team that absolutely the Canucks should be finding a way to get two points against tonight at Rogers Arena, and if they can't, I mean, not only will it cost them the standings, but I think it, it kind of goes back to that they're consistently inconsistently thing, right? Where we know they're capable of some very, very impressive performances, but they're also capable of dropping games that they should win. I absolutely look at this as a, a must win and a very much should win game for the Canucks. I 100% agree with you. You have to win tonight. You have to win tonight. There's no, there's not enough wiggle room. There's not enough, like it is too bunched up in, in the West um, you know, if Vegas keeps flagging again, that means you're going to get Winnipeg winning that game, right? Uh, you just certainly just want one of those teams to win with two points. Uh, I think Winnipeg's going to be coming to the end, too. I, I think Dallas is a really tough opponent overall, even with the Hadoban injury. You know, Jake Ottinger is really good. That blue line is really good. Yes, they don't have enough secondary scoring, but they can grind out a lot of 2-1 wins. Um, and they have a relatively favorable schedule. Like, their next opponent is the New York Islanders. They also have a ton of games in hand, right? If they capitalize on those games in hand, uh, the the small gap between the Canucks and a playoff spot could look a lot larger 10 days from now. So, yeah, th- right now, right now, this game, this is everything. You cannot afford to slip against the Detroit Red Wings at home. Like, come on. It's also you just cannot. Like, like, go out and assert your dominance on this team, right? Like, you're better. You're better than this team, and you have something to play for. You you are in the thick of a playoff race that they are not. Go out and show that your season is more meaningful and you're the better team against the depleted Detroit Red Wings uh, roster tonight. Like that should be the task at hand. And again, we'll see. You know, Pedersen's a game time decision. Hoaglander's a game time decision. So the Canucks could still have a bit of a makeshift lineup of their own tonight. But you still have the pieces and the talent. Uh, you have Demko and goal. You have all of that 
that you should expect to be the much better team against the Detroit Red Wings uh, tonight. 650-650 is the Dunbar Lumber text message inbox. Lots and lots and lots of thoughts uh, about JT Miller and his future with the team here. Uh, This one comes in from Rocket and Langley. Obviously, JT Miller right now is worth more than he'll be for the summer as the team will get him for two playoff shots. Uh, That's why I think Colorado is their best bet. They need to take a run here for two years, and they'll need JT Miller, especially the way Calgary is loading up. That's from Rocket in Langley. Another one, Unsigned, says, You will never win a cup if you do not retain players like Miller. Pay the piper, and worse comes to worse, dump him with picks. You need to keep need to keep JT. Sorry, no question. But, but what did they say about Corey Perry? Oh, they said comparing Perry to Miller, different players completely. By the way, um, yeah, yeah, because because Corey Perry was significantly better for a significantly larger period of time. Like, come on, come on. I'm sorry. Like, Corey Perry won a Hart Trophy. He was a 50 goal scorer, and he was basically a consistent 30 goal guy for the better part of a decade. Like, come on. What are we talking about here? I know JT Miller's having a career year, but this is the first sort of season that he's ever had where he's been a top, like a high-end point producer. You know, Corey Perry, one of the best two-way wingers in hockey for a decade. Come on. Come on. That's un- That's ridiculous. The other thing is, and I mentioned this when you were kind of making... Like, just ground your takes in a little bit of fact. When- just a little bit. I don't ask for a lot. Just a little bit. When you were making the comparison with Kadri and Trocek, I mentioned this, but it's not as if the Canucks are staring down losing JT Miller for nothing, right? It's not like, oh man, we have to trade him at this deadline in the middle of the playoff race or let him walk in the summer as a UFA and we get nothing in return. Like, you still have a chance to cash in in a major way here. This is not a JT Miller or we're left with nothing but cap space, to be fair, as a result. You have a chance to do something really significant uh, for your team. Nate from Comox texts in, isn't this just so Canuck? Just when you think they're going to have the decision made for them, whole fan base finally happy, then blam, ultimate turnaround, almost have a shot at the playoffs, and now we're going to extend our fourth liner and max out, max out JT Miller. This is so frustrating. I hate the salary well, cap. No, the, the, <laughs> yeah, fair enough. Me too. The, the, the most Canucks thing, though, would be that they, you know, go on this run for the next three days, right? Next three games. Go through the deadline quietly and then get absolutely Lose stomped like six in a row, yeah. In Colorado and, and Minnesota, and it's like, oh, wait, why did we not sell? That would be the most Canucks possible outcome. Yes. Uh, no comment. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm not even being negative. I've just watched no, no, this. No, 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 no. It's just. I've watched this franchise play for 50 years, or well, not 50 because I'm not that old, but I've watched this franchise very closely for the last 25 years. I'm, I'm, I know not to expect great things. <laughs> Sorry, I know I know not ex- to expect nice things. Excuse me. Yes. Uh, certainly, I don't expect any bounces at the lottery table, right? And uh, and one would think that yeah, I mean this is this is shaping up to be a very Canucks season in a lot of ways. It's a, the or or it could be completely different, right? Or it could be the one year where who knows? But the point Nate makes about you know it looked like they were going to have a decision made for them, and then all of a sudden it became a lot more complicated. Yeah, I think it did. There's no doubt about that, right? And I mean, you just tell. The reports we hear from Elliot Friedman, from Frank Valley, the intel you're hearing, like it's changed dramatically over the course of the last month, which is which uh, is kind I would of say I would say over the last three weeks, sure, and, and which is kind of funny when you think you know normally you would expect that trade chatter to really heat up as you get closer to the deadline, and it's, it's really it's fallen off, cooled, and yeah. it, and it's really just because they've made that process and the the decisions on guys like Tyler Mott and JT Miller so much more complicated than they looked to be when Jim Rutherford was taking over. And I, I still do think that 
whatever we see happen between now and the trade deadline on Monday, that we're still in for a lot of movement at some point between now and next season, right? Most likely at the, whether it is between now and the deadline or if it comes in the summer, I still think we're going to see that. But I think the roadmap of what exactly that looks like and when it happens exactly has become uh, has become a very very different and a lot more complicated than than we all thought it would be a couple months ago. Well, and it was always going to be complicated, but this is a totally different layer of complexity because you're also navigating, you know, the playoff shot that this team has sort of earned, the relationship with players who had the rug pulled out from under them following the bubble experience. Right? Uh, is there a sense of here we go again? If you do it again. Um, and, and look, I, I also think you are navigating as New Canucks management an organization that never sells, right? Like, they, this organization has ne- would never sell a point out from the playoffs. Like, that's just not in this club's DNA. This club has been run with sort of a, a playoffs, uh, expedited path to the playoffs are the priority view of competing in the NHL for 20 years. I mean, that's, you know, at the core of who this team is. Um, so, you know, I, I, I'm not surprised that we've gotten to this point with where the Canucks are positioned, where I, why I am surprised we got to this point is I certainly didn't see this type of run sustained for this long coming from this club. And, and here's the last thing that I think we do need to be really mindful of, even though of late, they haven't been leaning on their goaltending the same way. This team is number one in the NHL at five on five by save percentage. And that's persisted through some tough Halak starts, but it's persisted through Halak and Demko both being on COVID protocol. Mm-hmm. Spencer Martin comes in. How many teams around the league have you seen throwing a, a Nico Dawes or what have you, and, and the guy's not quite up to snuff, right? The Canucks even got 950 goaltending from Spencer Martin. Um, you know, there there is a lot of things that I think you need to look at and wonder, is that repeatable? Can we count on that year after year? especially as you evaluate this team. Of late, too, as their goaltending has regressed, which was inevitable, they, they, they got hot. They started converting 15% of every shot they took. Um, we'll see if they can sustain it. They're going to need to. Like, they're, they're going to need to if they're going to make the playoffs. But, yeah, I, I do not envy Jim Rutherford and company, uh, and, of course, wishing Jim Rutherford well as yes. he entered COVID protocol. Um, texted briefly with him, seemed to be doing okay. Good, good to hear. Very good to hear. But, um. But we will, uh, you know, I do think it's going to be a very tricky situation to navigate and one where regardless of what decision gets made, you know, it could be 10 days later and we're wondering why. And that's uh, that's a scary place to be, I think, for the Canucks. Enjoy the game tonight. We'll be back tomorrow on a Friday to break it all down. Lots more game day coverage coming up. The People Show with Bick and Randeep. He's back from L.A. That's coming up next. It's the home of the Canucks, Sportsnet 650.